0: chapter 3. And at this time, preschoolers may be dismissed for children's church. We're looking at Genesis chapter 3 this morning, verses 22 through 24. If you don't know where Genesis is, uh, please don't be embarrassed. It's the first book of the Bible. So as you open it, it's the one on the left. The first one on the left, Genesis 3, 22 through 24. And as you're turning, um, a story to begin. Uh, two springs ago, Paige and I and, and the children traveled to New Orleans, which was my first time to, to visit New Orleans. And I was excited for several reasons. I'm a culturalist. I love going to new places and seeing how they do life, how they do architecture, how they do food. And New Orleans is, is unique among itself for some of its cultural distinctives, so to speak. And I'm, I'm also a huge person for aesthetics. Um, and I like the way things kind of appear, you know, uh, call it the right brain in me. I, I like to see how, how, how art is portrayed how things look and how things are different. So this is our first trip to, uh, my first trip to New Orleans, uh, and it was a blast. And I have several mental pictures in my mind as I'm thinking through the trip. One is we, we, parked, down, um, we parked downtown, but we kind of parked far away so we could ride the uh, the cars into downtown. And I won't forget sitting next to my oldest child, you know, her head sticking out the window. Um, you know, just this this out-of-body experience. And and driving through the the Garden District, which is this part of of downtown New Orleans, it's got some of the oldest architecture in the city. Um, It's still got some of that that Spanish and Caribbean influence. And they use colors that if if we try to use those colors in our homes here, they would think we're, you know, a a few crayons short of a a full box. We can't pull it off, but they can. It's this beautiful district uh, in in New Orleans, And we, we traveled down to the, to the French Quarter. We got to walk around uh, the square and got to see some local art. We had, uh, I had blackened shrimp for the first time. Um, got to see a bride and a groom leaving St. Louis Cathedral, uh, which was pretty amazing. And, and perhaps my, my favorite part of the trip, and this tells you a lot about me, um, was, our, was our trip to this, this restaurant called Café Dumont. And if you know what I'm talking about, you're nodding your head and you're going, yes, I, I know what makes them famous. Uh, two things. They have coffee that's called café au lait, and it's a mixture of steamed milk and coffee, and it's it's perfect. It's the perfect cup of coffee. And and, and the other thing they serve is is this Cajun donut called a beignet. And if you've ever had a, fr- a, a fresh beignet with powdered sugar on it before, you know what I'm talking about. There is nothing like it. And so for me, as as you know, as my personality goes, uh, I'm a huge fan of New Orleans. I love it. Anytime we had a chance to visit, I do it all the time. But what's hard for me to think is, is that just a few years before, this paradise, at least in my mind, this paradise was just overturned. The, the storm came through, and all of you know Hurricane Katrina. And where once was, you know, this, this, this smell of of beignets and coffee was replaced by this stagnant saltwater smell. Where once was this, this glorious food, you know, shippers... And, and, and trucks couldn't get back into New Orleans, so they had to drop it from helicopters, these military rations. You know I'm talking about? The kind that you have to peel the top back and, you know, you've got freeze-dried roast beef that has a shelf life of 23 years, right? Where once was, you know, beignets is now just chaos and military rations. And where once were these garden homes, these, these beautiful homes, rich in color, rich in architecture, are replaced with rows and rows and acres and acres. Of FEMA trailers it was mind-bending to me that just a few years ago this paradise was entirely lost I'll tell you that story this morning because it deals very directly with ours we have this great paradise we have this place of beauty this place of culture uh, this place of power and what happens the spiritual storm comes through in paradise paradise is lost Let's read of that together as we read our scripture this morning from Genesis 3, verses 22 through 24. This is God breathed. Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever... Therefore the Lord God sent him out from the Garden of Eden to work the ground from which he was taken. He drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the tree of life. Let's pray together. Spirit, as you inspired those who wrote the scriptures, would you so illumine our minds now? Help us to see these great These eternal, these timeless truths of God's mercy, of God's grace, of our rebellion, of our coup against the Lord. Give us eyes to see, ears to hear, and repentant hearts we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to begin this morning with an observation. Uh, and, and perhaps uh, you have observed this, too. It's a strange one. I'll admit it up front. It's a strange observation. But it's this. It, I, I've noticed our country has a, has a strange fascination with an idea of rejection. We have a strange fascination with this, this idea of rejection. It, it's strange in this sense. How could something so painful, right? How could something so painful and so hurtful to an individual capture our attention so? Let, let me explain. Um, And I'll just use TV as an example, okay? There's a couple shows out there that really capture this idea. Uh, The Bachelor or The Bachelorette. The concept of this show is is there is a very good-looking guy or very good-looking girl, and they're stuck on this compound with a whole bunch of attractive people of the opposite sex. And what they basically have to do is go on these very unrealistic dates, by the way. Uh, And and they have to kind of weed through all these these people and decide, you know, whom they're going to keep and whom they're going to reject. To the ones they keep they get a rose. They get the bachelor's rose or the bachelorette's rose. And to those that don't, I mean, you you just see the train wreck afterwards and you just go, oh, this is so painful. But it sells. It's on its, I don't know how many seasons it's in now, but it sells. Uh, Consider another one, The Apprentice. It's it's the same thing, except it's for the businessman. You you join these teams and if you can produce and if you can create income and create capital, you get to stay. If not, you get rejected, right? And he's kind of coined this phrase, Donald Trump, you're fired last one. Uh, American Idol. Uh, It's still a very popular show. Um, Do you know when uh, Idol's um, ratings are the highest? You would think it'd be towards the end when it's like down between one or two people and you're going, oh wow, you know, who's it going to be? You know, who's going to get, you know, the American Idol award at the end of the year? No. It's actually at the beginning. It's at the beginning of the season. You know why? You know what happens at the beginning of American Idol? They show all the people that got rejected. That's when its ratings are the highest and that's when people watch it the most kind of strange, isn't it? When it's other people being rejected and when it's other people uh, who, who are dealing with the effects of rejection, we call it entertainment and we're okay with that. But what happens when the reality show becomes our reality? What happens when we're the ones being rejected? It's not so entertaining anymore, is it? What happens when you've been serving a company for, for years You've been moral, you've been upright, but you know it's been difficult times. And you come to your desk, and and the pink slips on, on your desk. Not because of anything you did, not because of anybody you told off. It just, you drew the short straw. All of us have a version of this story, right? It's not you, it's me. It may have been junior high, it may actually be more recently. You're suffering the rejection of a loved one. For no reason or that they can explain or that you can understand, you get the, it's not you, it's me conversation. It's not so entertaining anymore. It gets very, very personal. How do you, how do you respond as a human being? How do you respond when, when the rejection comes off the TV screen and it's, and it's your reality? I think we have a myriad of responses. Let me just highlight a couple as we, as we move forward this morning. Some of us, when we deal with rejection, we, we can turn inward. We can go, okay, if, 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 if I'm worthy of being rejected, that must mean I am some sort of a reject. And so we get this dark night of the soul, and we get this, this depression, and we don't know what to do with it. We turn inward. Others of us, we do the exact opposite. Oh, you're going to reject me? Well, guess what I want to do? I'm going to reject you. You're going to fire me? Well, I'm going to steal a stapler. You're not going to be my friend? I'm not going to be your friend. Right? We sort of get in this little tit-for-tat economy. All that to ask this, this question this morning. And this is the question where I want us to camp on. How do you think God handles rejection? What do you think God will do? What is God's knee-jerk reaction? What is his immediate response when his people reject him? In other words, when creation says to the creator, Yeah, here's your pink slip, we're not interested in picking up your options anymore, Lord. How do you think the creator of the universe responds to rejection? That's what we're dealing with in our passage this morning. And I'm going to suggest, according to these three verses, he he acts in these three ways he acts severely, he acts mercifully. And he acts sacrificially. Three ways. Severely, mercifully, and sacrificially. Let's begin with severely. And you have to say, really, Jake? Um, it's pretty clear he acts severely in this passage. But let's, let's get to the heart of it. And I want us to look at, at this point through the lens of one thing in particular. And if you haven't been raised in the church... This point doesn't matter because most everybody knows the story of the Garden of Eden, right? Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden, and and they're placed um, to rule, to subdue, to fill, to be vice regents. God says, you know, hey, this isn't just going to be my show. You You get to be vice regents. You get to do this with me. Fill it. Rule it. Subdue it. Be creative with it. Own it. And let's have fun together. And he says, the only thing I command is that there's this tree. This one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, I ask that you do not eat of it, because your eyes will be opened, and you'll be like God. Not God, but like God. And we know how the story goes, right? What happens? Adam and Eve realize that the only thing that they don't have in the garden is authority. They realize they're number two. We're vice regents with God. The only thing we don't have is being number one. And so they're tempted they eat, and they fall. Now, if some of your Bibles have at the beginning of chapter 3 this heading, the fall, I'm going to deal with that for just one second, and I'm, I'm a dear to a scholar for making this point. He says, I, I, I'm not sure why we call it the fall. And his, his point is this. How, how many of us f- fall on purpose? Falling is so accidental, right? None of us look at a hole in the ground and say, you know what? I'm I'm gonna to plan to fall in that hole today. None of us get up in the middle of the night and go, man, I hope I stub my toe and fall flat on my face. I really hope I do that. I'm planning to do that. Falls are accidental. And his point is this: he's saying, why do we call it the fall? Because falls are accidental. And his point is, there is nothing accidental going on in Genesis chapter 3. There is no surprise here on Adam and Eve as they're being expelled to go, what just happened? There is no surprise here. His point is this. He's saying Adam and Eve's actions are calculated, premeditated, intentional, strategic, deliberate. They know what they're doing, and they reject the Lord. They say, we're actually going to give you the pink slip. We don't like the way this whole thing is set up and and the way you've organized it. We're done. We're calling it quits. Quits. And it's in this context that we understand, we start to understand God's actions. Because by all appearances, it looks like as if God is re-rejecting, right? As if God is saying, okay, Adam and Eve, well, if, if you're going to eat of the tree I told you not to, well then, well, then out you go. You have lost your Eden privileges, right? Like a parent standing over a child. You have lost your Eden privileges. I, I, I admit, I, I've read this passage for most of my life in the wrong way. I assume what was happening here is, is, is that God is kind of re-rejecting. I, I imagine Adam and Eve leaving the garden with this god-sized kind of handprint on the backside, saying, "You got what you deserved. This great thing, this incredible place called Eden. Man, you disobeyed, and you don't get to enjoy that anymore. You're done. Out you go. On to Genesis chapter four, right? Is that what's happening here? Consider this. Most sovereign countries right now, if, if, if you were to organize a coup or to organize a rebellion to try to usurp that sovereign power from a, from a person or from a group of people, you know what the penalty is? And this is not just like the United States. This is across the world. You know what the penalty is? It's one of two things. It's either life in prison or death. And we say, boy, that's kind of harsh. That's kind of severe. But that's been in our DNA since the beginning of time is is. Is is when man rebels, and when man says, and, and one commentator puts it this way, when he describes sin, what, what sin is, is it's not just this like behavior, it's not just this addiction. What what sin is at its very core, its very heart, is an attempt to usurp the power and the throne from the Almighty. Every sin is an attempt to usurp the power and the throne from the Almighty. And so we see God being severe in this passage. We see it in his as, as he expels Adam and Eve from the garden, right? And not only does he expel them, he says this isn't, you know, temporary. This is permanent. And I've put this angel up here to show you that there is no more entrance. You may not come back in. This matter is closed. You see, we have the liberty of, of having the New Testament now. And we know we have Paul's writings and Peter's writings and the New Testament writers. At this point in the story... We're not hardwired this way, but an Old Testament reader would be. We're begging the question. We're asking the question, why are Adam and Eve still alive? They've committed treason. They organized a coup against the Almighty. And Paul says later in the New Testament, he says, Hear this, O Christians. The wages of sin is not geographic relocation. The wages of sin is not a God-sized handprint on your backside. The wages of sin is not the spiritual detention the wages of sin is not losing your Eden privileges. What does he say? He says, the wages of sin is what? Death. And we're going, that is so severe. And if that's the case, why are they still breathing? Why are they alive? Why is their blood coursing through their veins? And it's for this reason. As though even though the Lord is severe, he's also very merciful. Not only does he handle rejection with severity, he handles it with mercy. Mercy. I want to shift our attention from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which kind of began this great rebellion in Adam and Eve, this rebellion that, that, that we still struggle with today, um, to this other tree. And this, this tree doesn't get a lot of attention uh, in the scriptures, and I'm not sure why, but it's a fascinating tree. Whereas this tree would bring judgment and death, there was another tree in the garden. It's called the tree of life. You know what its purpose was? It was very simple. Eat of it and live forever. It was the tree of life. It was the tree of immortality. It was the Holy Grail. As long as you ate of this, you would live forever. It kind of communicates to us that, that God had a sense of permanency in Eden, going, This is the way I want it to be. And I'm going to put this tree in there that as long as you eat from it, you will stay here forever and you will live forever. Now consider this. Everything's not hunky-dory in the story right now. What happens? Man has begun this great rebellion, this great coup against God. And now this relationship between he and his creation is broken. Let me ask you this. What happens if Adam and Eve stay in the garden? What happens after this rebellion and this coup has begun? What happens if they have access to this tree of life? What happens? They stay there forever. Not only do they stay there forever, but they stay in this state of separation from God forever. And I suggest to you this morning that our God can't, can't stand the thought of that. Let me show you why I believe that's the case. First, in what the Lord says. Second, in what the Lord does. Look at what he says in verse 22. I'm going to read it, and I want to explain something, and I want us to go back and read it again in light of it. Verse 22, the Lord God said... Behold, the man has become like one of us, and knowing good from evil. Now lest he reach out his hand, and take also of the tree of life, and eat, and live forever. A Hebrew scholar, and I'm indebted to him for this, said, anytime you see a sentence that ends abruptly, an incomplete sentence like we have here, and it's represented by this little dash at the end of verse 22. You see that dash? You're kind of left hanging. You're going, there's something else he says, whenever you see that happen, whenever you see that occur in Hebrew literature, pause. Insert a great amount of emotion. As if the person writing it can't bring himself to complete the thought because it is so painful. Let's read it again. This is what the Lord says. He says, behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever, he can't stand the thought. Of being eternally separated from his creation. Very rarely do we find the father speechless. Very rarely do we find him at a loss for words. But here in this passage, the thought is so painful, he can't bring himself to complete it. Those are his words, but look at his deeds. Verse 24, he drove out the man. And at the east of the Garden of Eden, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword because his ego was bruised. Because someone was challenging his sovereignty. Now, that's how we do it, right? When we're rejected, we're mad that that someone has challenged our sovereignty, right? We're mad that, that, that someone has dealt with us in that way. You know how God handles rejection? This way. He says, he placed the cherubim and the flaming sword that turned every way to guard what? A tree of life. He's protecting us from ourselves. Because he knows if, if we begin in this state of rebellion, we'll stay there. And he can't stand the thought of that. So he says, out you go. You can't stay here. Because if you do, we will never be together again. This is done. And so what was this God-sized handprint? We go, there's something different going on here. There's something different in this expulsion. It's actually... A severe mercy. I want to pause here for a moment and and consider a couple things before we move into the last point. And it's this uh, I want us to be aware of a a false economy. I'll explain it and then I'll illustrate it here in a minute. The false economy is this, and and this is typically the way we have read this passage. Um, We should never think that any misfortune that comes our way. Any trial or any suffering that comes our way is God's way of handling this rebellion in our heart. as God's answer for the penalty of sin. To put it another way, we shouldn't trivialize or minimize sin to a state so low that we believe that apart from death itself, we can somehow repay for it. Let me illustrate this way. You're on your way home from your accountant's office. You just did your taxes for the year. And if you're under 18, I'm sorry, this, this illustration is not relevant. Yet, um, But you're traveling home from your, your accountant's office and you realize something. There was an account I didn't declare. It wasn't a big one. But you know that it might mean you, you going back and, 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 and declaring some more money and therefore owing you know, state or federal taxes a little bit more. And you're debating in your head. You're going, gosh, I mean, is it really that big of a deal? Is this a moral decision if I paid myself minimum wage you know, from the time of now and then I got there? Would it make a difference? But before you've made a decision, you see the blue lights in your rearview mirror. You're getting pulled over. You weren't weren't watching your speed. And you get a speeding ticket. Here's what typically goes through a human's mind is this. God, man, you're good. (laughs) You got me. I didn't make a decision. I should have gone back. And you're giving me what I deserve. Man, you're just. You're just. You are judge. What we need to understand is and remind ourselves of this morning of Paul's words. The wages of sin is death. And we have to beg ourselves and ask ourselves the same question. Why are we alive? When we experience the misfortune and the trials of this age, we 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 should be reminded of God's mercy. Why are we still living? Why is there still blood coursing through our veins? Why is there still breath in my lungs? Why are we allowed to live? And it's because of this one point. God's mercy is, is, is severe, and it's merciful. And he does this, and, and he did it with Adam and Eve in the garden, and he does it with us. He says, I'm on to delay judgment, big J judgment. And we're talking about apocalyptic four riders. We're talking about capital J judgment. The Lord says, I'm delaying judgment. Adam and Eve, you get to experience it. Genesis 3 could have ended. There could be no Genesis 4. He could have wiped everything clean and said, done, and would have been just in doing so. But he doesn't. He says, no, I I love you so much and I want to be with you so much that I'm actually going to delay judgment. But in turn, you know what we get? We get a shadow of that judgment. Call it discipline, if you will. And consider the psalmists and the writers of Proverbs. Have you ever read this before? You're reading through the Proverbs and one of them will say, and it says it in in chapter 12, Lord, I love your discipline. Have you ever read that before and gone... I don't know if there's a thought more foreign to my mind than the love of discipline. What brought him to say that? What would bring a writer to say, Lord, your discipline, I actually love it? It's for this reason. I believe that the psalmist and the writers of Proverbs realize this one fact, that our God could judge. Again, big J judgment. He could end the story. It could be done. But what does he do? He delays judgment. He says, that time will come. But until then, I'm going to give you misfortune. I'm going to give you discipline. I'm going to try to open your eyes so you can see this great rebellion that exists within your heart. You have sought my throne. You have sought my authority. You have sought to kick me off of this throne. And until you recognize that and will repent of it, I'm I'm actually going to delay judgment because I want you to see it. I want you to bathe in it. And, like the prodigal son, I mean, he's up to his ears in pig slop. He's going, I see it now. It's not good to be apart from the Father. That's not the way I was created or created to be. So beware of that false economy that God's kind of getting back at you and that the accounts are kind of balanced and, you know, oh, this is just God's way of judging me. No, it's not. That judgment is coming. But He gives you discipline. See if you'll open your eyes, see if you'll turn, see if you'll repent. Last thought this morning. Not only is our God one who delays judgment, not only is He merciful, but He, but he also offers to remove it altogether. He says, This big jade that's coming, this, this big judgment that's coming when all accounts will be settled, uh, He offers to remove it from you entirely. You know, in one sense, what, is it, what good is it to delay judgment, right? If it's just coming, let's just get it over with, right? It's like that dentist appointment. This is like, let's just get it done with. Right? It's, it doesn't do much to delay it. But God says, I'm not just going to delay it. I'm going to offer to remove it entirely. And yes, this is the point in the sermon where you begin to talk about Jesus. But thankfully, what we don't have to do is we don't have to go to the New Testament for that just yet. It's actually in this passage. And what's, uh, what's so amazing to me is that he actually makes mention of this promise of one who will come to take the judgment, the big J judgment for us is that we may live. Just seven verses before this one. This is the Lord speaking with Satan as he's describing the curse to Satan. This is Genesis 3.15. Listen to the language here. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. We have this sort of Old Testament primeval Promise of one who will come and, and and at his heels' expense. You know, you get this image of, of blood being raised to the to the skin level, of pain, of suffering, of one who will come in our stead. Of one who will come and say, I will I will endure the big J judgment. I will endure the wrath of the, the unbridled, the unhindered wrath of the Father, so that you may enjoy the unbridled, unhindered presence of the Father. It's almost as if Jesus is saying, You know, Father, Give me the military rations. Let me have those. Give them the French Quarterback. Give them Bourbon Street back. Give me the FEMA trailer. Let me live there. And give them the mansion that is among many rooms, that has many rooms. Give that to them. That's why Jesus says at the end Father, Father, why have you forsaken me? Why have you rejected me? And so that you and I can say, Father, Father, why? why have you accepted me? And what's so amazing to me is, at this point in Scripture, you know, as you compare our reaction to rejection, you compare the Father's, His reaction is immediate. He says this, you've got to get out of the garden. Because if you stay, you'll stay in this state forever. I'm removing you from it. I'm beginning this great plan of redemption. And by the way, it's going to involve the death of my son. And he will take the judgment that we deserve on his back, and he will bear it so that we might have the eternal presence of the Father. I don't want to take this too far, but it's as if this is the only time in history that this phrase has ever been used appropriately. As as Christ is praying in the garden, and he's asking the Father to remove the cup, Again, this is the only time it's, I think it's used appropriate in history. The Father says, it's not you. It's me. It's not you. It's a me thing. My wrath, my judgment has to be satisfied. I'm a really good accountant. It just doesn't disappear. It's got to go somewhere. And Adam and Eve, prodigal sons, you and I, we get to escape that judgment under the umbrella and under the robes of a righteous Jesus Christ. I want to read from another book this morning in closing. It too is inspired by the Holy Spirit but written by a different man. Whereas our passage this morning deals with the beginning of time and the creation of man, this book deals with the end of time and the end of man. And and listen to what is similar about all four of these verses. Listen to what's there. This is chapter 2, verse 7 of Revelation, John's Revelation. Jesus speaking, He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. Chapter 22, 2. Through the middle of this street, of this city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. With its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Verse 14. Blessed are those who wash their robes, so they may have a right to the tree of life. And that may enter the city by the gates. Verse 19, if anyone takes away from the words of this book or of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life. We never have mention of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil after Genesis 3. But we do have mention of the tree of life. It doesn't go away. It's actually a part of this kingdom that God is creating and building even now. So that we might enjoy Eden again. You know, there's there's lots of people bringing things back. You know, Bono at the beginning of his Rattle and Hum album says, "You know, Charles Manson, this mass murderer, he's still helter skelter. I'm bringing it back. I'm stealing it back, right?" TD Bank is trying to bring back the personal banking experience. That's what we're bringing back. Justin Timberlake's trying to bring sexy back, right? What Jesus says in this passage and what he's trying to communicate to us is, you know, what I'm bringing back? I'm bringing Eden back. I mean, the tree of life's great. That's immortal. That's awesome. But I'm bringing Eden back. What's at the centerpiece of Eden is, is this unhindered, unfettered relationship with the Father. That's what I'm doing. That's what I'm all about. That's what my effort's being pointed towards. That's my job. I'm bringing you back into fellowship with the Father. That thing in Eden, I'm bringing it back. A friend sent me this quote this week, and when someone else sums it up better than you, you might as well just quote them instead and save everybody the time. This is what C.S. Lewis said toward the end of his life. He said, The sweetest thing in all my life has been the longing to reach the mountain, to find the place where all the beauty came from, my country, the place where I ought to have been born. Do you think it all meant nothing, all the longing, the longing for home? For indeed, it now feels not like going, but going back. And I can't think of anything better for Jesus to be bringing back than that one thing we want, the Father. Let's pray together. Father, if we knew everything your Son has undertaken on our behalf to bring us back into fellowship with you, would we not be amazed? Son, what words can we say? to thank you for your efforts your leading of a blameless life Uh, even in the midst of our coup and our rebellion you took that upon your back so that we might not suffer the rejection of the Lord and you suffered it for us so that we might enjoy the Father thank you for this and we ask that this thanks would and this understanding would empower us As we leave from this place, motivated by your grace, by your love, and your endearment of us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.